Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Hey, France Dance, thanks so much for tuning back in. I hope you had a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to the series with CP, Randy, and Emilio. Thank you so much for all your feedback. If you have something to comment on my Orthodox life, I may do something as a follow-up. I know it just dropped on Friday. I do have one more announcement regarding my services. I'm no longer offering the VIP launch days. Now I have a DIY online course that's available to anyone and everyone who is looking to launch a podcast on their own. It is available for a very reasonable price. You will have all the information and guidance you need to be launched successfully. Without any further ado, I'm so excited to present this episode to you. Thanks for listening to The Francisca Show, a part of Jewish Coffeehouse Network. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Francisca Show, France Dance. Today with us, we have Dr. Emmanuel Block on the show with us. Welcome. Hi. And we're here to talk about nothing other than the topic of Tzniu or Tznius once again and with a man. So I am so excited about this. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for welcoming me. We will be going into this from a, an academic, intellectual, and legal standpoint. So don't get scared here. We don't have a rabbi telling us how to dress. We have an outsider, shall we say. By outsider, I mean a man, even though Tznias doesn't just apply to women. However, culturally, it became a woman's thing. And I'll have you comment on all of that. <laughs> I, I'm just so excited for this conversation. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional and Jewish background. I'll start with a professional background. I was first trained as a lawyer. I worked as an attorney at law in Europe, mostly in Switzerland, in Geneva. And at some point I decided I was, after three years, I was unhappy with my job. I decided to leave and start a second career in Jewish studies. So I did a PhD in Jewish philosophy and still very interested in legal stuff. So I studied halacha, how halacha develops, how it changes. And it's new, it's news is very interesting from that perspective. And maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that. From a Jewish point of view, my family is from Alsace-Lorraine, from a small city in the east of France, and not very observant with some traditions. I became much, much more religious when I was 18, 19. As a young adult, I ended up in Yeshiva in Mount Sinai, New York, of all places. Mm -hmm. I also met, I studied for like two years, almost two years, and then continued half-time in Kolel. So I was like for like 10 years, mostly in Haredi communities, and then Later on, this is connect, all connected together, but I kind of discovered what an academic perspective shows on Judaism and all questions that are controversial. And I kind of moved on to a more modern 
kind of orthodoxy. So I guess I'm more than orthodox now. It's hard to put me and I, ha I happen to find myself in a box. So I'm still very, very interested to keep halacha, to keep all the mitzvot in learning Torah. I have friends in all kinds of communities. Okay, so very diverse. Sounds a lot like myself. We also had our lives cross many years back. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You probably have more of a memory than I do. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it was 20 or 25 years ago when I had just passed the bar exam and I could not sit in front of my study table for another minute. I decided to take a trip to Moscow to see Russia, Moscow and St. Petersburg. And I had a friend who was supposed to come with me who, and he canceled on me at the last minute. So I ended up visiting Moscow by myself and I spent one Shabbat meal with your family. I, rem I remember kids in the background. I don't remember more than that. I remember your parents were extremely welcoming and I had a fantastic discussion with them. I had a fantastic time in Moscow. Pretty sure you were there, but uh, yes, so it's the second time we meet. And I want to just acknowledge how, you know, the world goes around and somehow things rekindle again. And I want to thank Chaim Seyman for introducing us this time around. Okay. I, I know you say you're fascinated by halacha and the legal, the Jewish law, but how do you land specifically on Sniut? Like what was so fascinating about Sneas, as opposed to any other Jewish law. Yeah. So, yes, I am indeed interested in halacha, how it changes in response to internal factors, in response to external challenges. Sneut, I'm going to use the uh, modern pronunciation, is unique in a way. And that's one of the central ideas of my research. Sneut was not the halachic topic for many centuries, like for most of Jewish history, Sneut was not a legal halachic discussion. It became a legal halachic topic in the 1960s. That's the main idea from which all of my research proceeds. By that, I don't mean to say that Sneut is a modern invention, that for sure is wrong. We know from paintings, we have drawings, we have certain diaries from Sarah Schneider, for instance, from the 1920s, the 1930s in Poland. We, we know that Sneewood, we have um, ethical writings in Musa. Sneewood used to exist for as long as Judaism has been Judaism. But for a long, long time, Sneewood was like a mimetic tradition. It was passed from mother to daughter, from neighbors and friends at home, in the streets. It was never codified. It was never couched in legal language. It was never acquired textually. It was something that you, just as you know how to dress today, if you go to the office and you know it's not the same way you dress, if you want to go on a hike or if you want to go to a swimming pool, men and women knew how to dress in, in 16th century Poland or in, in 18th century Algeria. The dress code was very obvious. What happened in the 1960s is that we see the flourishing of a new genre in halachic literature, new books, halachic books, written in halachic language, in the traditional halachic style, describing how women are supposed to dress, what you know, areas of the body you have to cover, how you're supposed to cover, what colors are permitted, what colors are forbidden, if there's any difference if you're home or in the street. And all these questions are dealt intensively by 
many rabbis, not just one, mostly male. There's like two women writing on that, but mostly it's men writing for women, which is an interesting discussion by itself. And this is really a novel phenomenon. So the claim is that Sneon was not legal and became legal. And that switch of the 1960s is something I'm interested to research because it shows the change, that you, you can touch it, you can see how halacha changes in response to different phenomena that you can, we can discuss now. Okay, so how does the halacha change? Tell us what you found in your research. Once you realize that Sneewood has changed from a mimetic, implicit tradition to a text-based, rule-based discourse, then you, you can ask a couple of questions. One of the questions you can ask, that's the one that I'm mostly fascinated by, is how do we justify, how do we create new norms? How does that happen? What are the conditions by which rabbis can, you know, write halacha? How do you... And re reading all these books, there's like a lot of books. In, in the English-speaking world, the famous author is Rabbi Pesach Yehufalk from famous Pesach from Gateshead who passed away two years ago, but really I have like 41 or 42 books written in, in English and French and Yiddish and, and every language that we Jews speak today. So it's a pan-Orthodox phenomenon that in every segment of the Jewish world, like in Sfaradim and Yemen, it is someone somewhere who's writing Halachot, Hilchot, Snews. It's a huge change. How do you justify the new norms? Well, the rabbis, I guess, had a dilemma. Like this, this traditional lifestyle, these traditional norms that from women are supposed to dress in a certain way, all of a sudden, they were interested to express the same idea in halachic language. And to, to write norms, you need to go back traditionally. You need to go back to the Talmud. You need to go back to the Gemara. You need to go back to the commentators. So you need to write in a certain way to say, this is what the Talmud says in Brachot, in Ketubot, in somewhere. And then this is how the Rishonim, the medieval commentators, have dealt with this issue. And then you go through the whole halachic literature until today. And then you say, and this is Asur, Muda, this is permissible or forbidden. And when you look at that, you see that there are a couple of strategies that the rabbis have used. One of them, probably the most common one, is to use the concept of erva. Erva is an, a word that means nakedness. And it's, it's used in the Talmud, famously in Brachot 24a. The Talmud says that, you know, um, called Be'isha Erva, like so the woman is nakedness. I'm sure that some of your Auditors will have a lot to say about that. All these uh, sayings are famous and controversial. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to understand how this has changed and how this has developed. I'm done. No, you know, I'm a singer also, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always incredible how, like, things discussed 1,800 years ago have become so so important today for today's Yiddish guide. The hair of a woman is nakedness. It doesn't talk about a married woman. She pays attention. The skin of a woman... If you look carefully in the Talmud and in the 18th centuries of halachic creativity, the rabbis have always, always spoken on an issue, a prohibition, for men to dad and to say kriyat shema. The prohibition is always on the male. If you are a male, you need to say kriyat shema and you're exposed to a certain site that's deemed to be immodest, then you can't say shema because you are stimulated, it's, it's erotically stimulating to be in the presence of an 
unclad or relatively unclad female. There's in no source prior to the 1960s is we see an obligation for women to cover themselves. That is the chidush. That's the novelty of the 1960s when the rabbis had to find texts, old texts, and reinterpret them. One of them is this sugya, this passage in Brachot. They changed a prohibition for males to daven into an obligation for women to cover their bodies. That's one of the strategies that actually works very, very well. Some of the other strategies used are much less intuitive. But even so, I think I can show in my research that this switch from erva, from a prohibition for males to obligation for women, comes with far-reaching consequences. It's not just that you you know, you, you change something, then then Halaha has its own logic, and then the logic is taken further and further, and the obligation for women becomes like this independent category that extends much wider than first expected and first meant by the rabbis who did the switch. So, to go back, how did the rabbis do that? Well, in one way, the rabbis did what they've always done. They went back to the old sources, to the Talmud, and found the closest uh, sources that they could find, and then they reinterpreted. And there's a phenomenon of massive reinterpretation of traditional sources to justify norms regulating how women are supposed to dress. I just feel like I'm getting emotional. <laughs> I just want to acknowledge that. Hold on, let me just take a deep breath. So I have two things to say. Number one, I can hear on one side all the more right-wing or conservative whatever you want to call them, people say halacha was always something that was just taught or given over from parent to child. And, you know, there was a time when we went and we wrote it all down and then we had the Shulchan Aruch and the, the Mishnah Brewer, everything else that became written law, but it was always unwritten and unspoken, but it was all, it was observed at all times. So that's the argument that I'm assuming is going to come from the right. On the left and let's call it the far left, call it the the ex-Orthodox. They will say, see, rabbis go and make up all this stuff, and you call it Judaism, you call it Torah. Well, they just made it up in the 1960s. It's a new genre of Judaism. How, how can you believe in God? So I, I'm just voicing some of the concerns that will or have been coming up for our audience members. So let's let's go through that. Right. These are two really good questions, and it's not easy to answer both of them at the same time. And sometimes get one, and sometimes get the other. I'm not used to get the same, the two questions from right and the left in one sentence. It's going to be challenging. We let split me just, it up. We could split it up. Let me just say that I, in a way, identify with the two criticism. In my place in life, in my, well, position, I look back on my years in the Haredi world and I look at people I see as brothers and sisters, not as, as often the academic world, world sees as the other or like a threat and anachronisms. These are my the study, The study sample. Yeah. No, <laughs> Object right. of your research. Not an object of research. For me, some of my best friends are still in that world. I'm in touch with them day in and day out. I understand the challenge. In a way, if it's too challenging, I would be happy. And if I write a book, I think I should write somewhere that perhaps some people should not read that. If it's too much of a challenge to your hashkafa, just just don't read me. 
Um, because <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to, I don't want to create, you know, a crisis of faith. At the same time, if you really understand what I'm trying to say, I think it's less of a challenge that you might believe. I don't claim that rabbis create things out of nothing, out of thin air, or that they reform Judaism of nothing. What I do believe is that rabbis, especially in the 19th and the 20th century, want to preserve Yiddishkeit against changes. And they take all the steps they can to make sure that halacha, Torah, whatever you want to call it, Yiddishkeit continues and is preserved, and that the integrity of a Jewish tradition is maintained. Halach, Sniut, in a way, like the halachization of Sniut, is a conservative movement to preserve it against changes that we have not yet discussed. In the 1960s, the West was going crazy, like the sexual revolution. The way to translate a tradition into halacha is a way to preserve something that was always part of tradition. The next claim to say that, my claim to say that, at the moment you translate something into halacha, you also change it. Yes, I guess it's, it's a challenge to a traditional worldview, but maybe less than you think. I believe this is, has been going on all, always, like, you know, in a way, orthodoxy. I mean, that's, that's, that is the thesis of historian Jacob Katz. Orthodoxy is a reaction. He used to call that orthodoxia is a reaction to modern modernity. Like Katz would say, well, if you look at Eastern Europe in the, 19, in the 15th century, what did you see? You see the Jews keeping Shabbat, Ilchot Nida, and all that, eating kosher. If you look today in the Nebrak, you see Jews keeping Shabbos and kosher and all of that. What's the difference? The difference is between a traditional community in the Middle Ages that kept things intuitively, and I didn't think about that. It was just a way of life. And today, when to stay firm, you need strategies. You need to make sure you preserve your lifestyle. The decision to remain observant in the face of many other options, that is, that is a huge change that comes with ripple effects. And then you create political parties in Israel, and you create journals, and, and all kinds of norms that are meant to preserve the boundaries of a community. So, Sneel, in a way, is a very traditional move. It's a way to preserve something that was always part of tradition, but the decision to preserve it, in a way, changes it. I can show that in many ways. We need to give examples. Please do. Um, right. So, one example relates to the colors. As far as we can see, a traditional implicit Sneel knew of one color where they were forbidden for, for clothing, it was red. Red, we know that a Jewish woman never wore any red colors. We don't see anything beyond red. At the moment when in the 1960s, some rabbis decide to translate sneak into halacha, they have to give explanations. They have to say why. Why is red forbidden? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? that that's a huge change between traditional sneak to modern halachic sneak, as we need to give explanation, a whole paradigm of explanation to justify the new norms. And, well, there's more than one explanation, but famously, Rabbi Falk and all the people in his approach say, well, red is forbidden because it's, it's sexual, it's attractive for men. Red is seducive. And that's why you should, uh, Jewish women should not be too attractive, so no red. But at that moment, when you say red is uh, uh, not good, because it's just too enticing. But, well, you open a whole 
host of other questions, in particular, maybe different colors as well. And then you need to take the logic of what colors are too sexual for Jewish women to wear to its logical conclusions. And you find books, mostly in the Haredi, Anglo Haredi world, that discuss whether yellow or pink or blue, gold, where this color, where this is a whole hot the laws of colors, which one is forbidden, which was that it never existed before. It was unthinkable in the 18th century because red was just, you know, this social norm that everybody knew about, but no one integrated in a wider theoretical halachic framework. As soon as you translate that into halacha and you say, well, once you give an explanation, then it then it translates into everything else because it because you have to use that logic for every right. other color as well, That's or right. every other behavior or dress. Right. And then you have new norms. So part of this obsessiveness with new is that the moment of translation generates new norms automatically. That's what I mean to say when you say a move meant to preserve halacha created something that is in many ways the same, and in, in many ways not exactly the same. There's like a trajectory in this social change. Now, just as a point of comparison, another rabbi, an Israeli rabbi called Eliezer Melamed, who's religious, religious Zionist, if wrong, I have to also put in a box. He said, well, yes, red is forbidden, but no, it's not because red is sexual. Red is forbidden because it's a color of violence. It's just a sign for danger. You go in the street, with a sign, stop sign is red, and you can go and it's green. So red is the color of danger and color of violence that's not good for women. Believe what you this, this explanation or don't believe, I'm not interested. But if you give an explanation of a whole shtick of yellow, green, all that, that doesn't start. Because yellow and green and blue and all of that, it does not represent danger. So he, Rabbi Milanet, says it's only red and no other color that is an issue from Smith's perspective. So depending on what kind of explanation you provide, you get different halachot in the end. Are you saying in the 1960s, this became an obsession on women specifically, whereas people love to bring in right? That, that's, it applies to both women and men. This is not gender biased halacha. Okay, talk to me about that. Hatsnalecha was never quoted in Before the 1960s, no one used it. All right, you have two psukim in Tanakh that use the shoresh, the root sadi, we just quoted, and uh, in Mishli, in the book of Proverbs, I think. The truth is that Snud, if we go back, the, the concept of Snud appears in the Talmud and the Midrash first, and it's not always women. It's meant originally for men and women. It's you have in Snud how to behave, like describe how to behave when you go to the restroom, for instance, or when you have, you know, sex with your spouse. That's Snut had different meanings in different sources. It was also used in the context of women, and that, that meaning became much more predominant with the centuries passing until in the 20th century when said Snut, you understand, it means how women have to behave, mostly. What changed? Again, Snut used, used to be an ideal. It was used to be like a Musa. Like it used to be, it was never Halakha. We have values in the Jewish tradition that are not halachic, like you have to be generous, you have to give money, you have to be patient, you're not supposed to get upset. No one has written a halachic book saying these are the five conditions that have to be met for you to get upset. No one does that. 
you're supposed not to get upset. Do your best. Some kind of bad. Yes, women were supposed to be modest, but no one described exactly how women are supposed to dress. In the 1960s, well, not exactly precise, but a huge change took place in the 1960s. Again, most likely as a result of a change, a huge change in the West that we call it a sexual revolution, like all the traditional codes of sexual behavior, of dress behavior were challenged. You know, this is the time when the miniskirt was invented, women were wearing pants, which was like very shocking for people back then. There were discussions about different sexual orientation. And that change crept in certain from neighborhoods, from communities, and the, the, need, the need was felt to, you know, preserve a traditional lifestyle. On the left, my, my people on the left in the academic world said the need was felt to regulate the bodies of women and to exercise certain power, it's like the power of the rabbis to regulate the bodies of women. There's a gender perspective that's very much at play here. But so this, this reaction against huge changes in the West, right, where it's perceived to be threatening, and that's when you see the first books on Snewitz. And, and there's several starting points to, to that. You have like, there's a Hasidic book written by, um, a book written by a Hasidic rather, like an Admo of Nagvorna, which is a small Hasidic that I personally didn't know before. Rabbi Rosenbaum was an Admo of Nagvorna Zutschke, a very small group of Hasidim who wrote a book in the 1960s in Israel. Rabbi Shlomo Aviner, who's a right-wing religious Zionist, like the set kind of rabbi for the secular movement, also wrote a book. It starts in different places at the same time and it soon becomes prevalent in the entire Orthodox world, modern, not modern, everywhere. So a huge part of that is a reaction to changes in the West. That is not the entire story, but it's a huge part of the story. A different part of the story that people don't, usually don't see is that halacha, well, there's a phenomenon of halachization, of legalization, of ideas and concepts that used to be Jewish but not legal became more legal. That is a good example of that. We all, we all learned, I suppose, like that the Chafetz Chaim had described the laws of Lashonada. The truth is, is that you know, evil, evil uh, slandering is, was always Musar. This is very little the halachot of Lashonara in the Rambam, very little in the Shulchan Aruch. It was always meant to be a value. Do your best. Don't speak bad. Right. You're saying values became official laws. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on a little bit. I really appreciate your academic and intellectual slash legal perspective, but I like to go personal, <laughs> if you allow You've mentioned you grew up in a more traditional slash observant home. You have experienced Haredi, Mansi, Ishiva. You have chosen a more modern life for yourself as an adult. Tell us a little bit about that personal journey and how do you personally react? As you said, this is not just your object of research. This is a personal, maybe not as personal if you'd be a woman, <laughs> But tell us what what realizations or how does this sit with you personally? You mean general, like the religious approach to life or in terms of Snewitz specifically? Well, both. 
All right. Again, I think they learning are different... and studying this. How does this affect you religiously? I got to be because I was interested in researching halacha. I understand that for women, it's a very personal, it's a very charged and emotional issue. I talk to my wife and I see how she reacts. How does she that. react? <laughs> you know, it's a very emotional. As she has, I can I say her with her permission, and she has a slight sleep disorder. That means it's sometimes a bit hard for her to wake up. It's she sleeps very deeply. It's and and we have experience. I. I and, you know, in the morning, I can show her one of, the, one of his book and say, can you, what do you think of his passage? And it's the feeling of outrage that the rabbi tell that about how women should dress. It really is an emotional topic. It works much better than coffee to wake up in the morning. I think I would love a world in which snood would be still of value. It still would still tell you and would tell men and women at the same time that it's a value to be intimidated by both sexes. So that's it's very important in the Jewish tradition to be modest. We have to respect our bodies. We have to respect our own sexuality. But that, if that would be left to each person to be implemented in his or her own life, just like we do for, again, for Kibit Sedaka, the halachization, the transformation of Tznirut into halacha is, well, I understand why it, it was done, but at the same time, it's a way to standardize and to turn Sneewit into some kind of uniform for people, whereas I don't think it was, it was bad for many centuries. It is part of me that regrets its change. I think we, we would be better off by just giving, keeping it as an ideal, not discard, not rejecting it, but keeping it as an ideal. A value. To, to be pursued according to, you know, each one of us has limitations and certain circumstances of life that, that makes it a different, can express in different ways. Right. And why did you become more modern than your yeshiva experience? I always liked to read more than it was good for my own sake or to read books that are not on the canon. So that's, I guess, how I became religious in the first place. And that's how I became religious in a different way. Ten years later, I like to read, I like to discover new ideas, I like to talk to people from different communities. When I was 18 years old, I used to challenge my parents that we would keep certain halachot, keep certain mitzvot, and then we never went all the way. We would go to shul on Shabbat, but we did not keep Shabbat. And I used to ask them what we believe. If we believe in that stuff, what will we keep it? If we don't believe it, well, maybe you can just watch TV on Shabbat. And what's the point of going to, to shul and read all these strange Hebrew texts? But it took me years, but it took me to yeshiva, and I was very happy. I discovered communities that I think are just very admirable. I, when I started reading academic books on Judaism, my whole perspective changed 10 years later. Halacha and Torah are perceived in the firm world as above history and out of time. I think that was your question. Torah does not change. Halacha does not change. Well, it's quite easy to show that it does change. You just need to plot over time. Take any institution being, you know, sealed of anything, and you see what the rabbis have written in the second century, in the 10th century, in the 15th century. A lot of stuff is going to stay the same, the same, but there's also going to be a lot of changes. And once you've seen that, it's hard to believe in this version of Yiddishkeit that is this treasure of his heritage that is passed on from generation to generation with as little changes as possible. I don't think it's a real representation of what, what has happened over the centuries. And when I 
change that piece, I felt it was hard for me to stay in, in the Haredi world. Again, I'm still very much in touch with many friends. I don't think I can be an insider once I disagree on such a basic point of hashkafa. It's been a quest for truth. And my life has been a quest for truth. And I realize that I say that and some of your audiences will disagree with me, but still feel very much this way in my life. Well, it's okay to disagree. And I think the same curiosity and commitment that led you to a more observant Jewish lifestyle also guided you to your most authentic Jewish observance. And if anyone's listening and is questioning my language here, it's because I think the most authentic Jewish lifestyle is for it to become individualized. And what a lot of our communities are doing is mainstreaming and factorizing, I'm making up these words right now, but they're turning Jewish lifestyle into a factory. And this is how you have to be Jewish, which is, as you're mentioning, not at all how it used to be. It was a value-based life, an ideals-based life. And now it's just very commercial and and it's very anti-individualistic, Judaism, and I'm sure people will be yelling and throwing tomatoes, as we call it on the group, because I'm sure there are lots of Haredi or other types of very um, strict communities that think they do promote individualistic Jewish hashkafa. Work on your relationship with Hashem. Get closer with Hashem. Everything is about your personal and individualized work on yourself and your performance right. and observance. I strongly believe that there's many ways to be a good Jew. My way is not the only one way, and I don't believe, I, I think each path you take comes with a certain price you have to pay. And if you choose to be modern orthodox, if you choose to be this way or this, you have a price that you need to pay. And very often the criticism that is hard on the right, but it's, you know, you're taking a risk. It's, it's a valid criticism, but there's also a risk to become too much to the right. And that price is not always discussed or not publicly discussed. I think there are advantages and disadvantages to both approaches and to, to all the ways one can be Jewish. As long as you make a decision consciously and you know, realizing the chances you take and the advantages you're going to get, I think there's a lot of ways to be a good Jew. My, my own way, my own path for what it's worth, you know, there's this famous Mishnah in Baba Metzia, the first Mishnah that's describes two men coming to the basin, holding a talit. And each one said, I found it. This is my talit I found in the street. And they are, each one is pulling the talit. And then the basin has to decide what to do. Well, I think that I'm the talit. And I took two huge heritages, two huge philosophy, two worlds that claim my allegiance, that the traditional world of Torah, mitzvot, and, and learning Torah and all of that, that's pulling me in my direction. And modernity and science and the arts and there's a lot of things that you can put in the on the other way and my my task in life my path in judaism is try to stay intact try to i feel it's a tension but i find a lot of creativity in vantage in trying to be authentic not in just one level one sphere just tradition but trying to be able to embrace the good sides of modernity you know, science and democracy and arts. And there's a lot of good things in that in the modern world. And, and, and be whole and be authentic and be 
Nehmen, to be a, as authentic as we can in, in the two realms of my life. You mentioned risk. There are risks on both ends. Well, the risk of being too orthodox is extremism and that turning people off or just becoming extreme. Oh, and then that. What, what else is there? Well, the rejection of science. I mean, uh, you know, people refusing to, to get vaccinated or like the time it took for the right-wing communities to accept that COVID is dangerous. We've paid, it's a tragic, we paid with thousands of people dying just because, you know, there's less connection to science in, in, in these communities. I also think there's a lot of superstition, to be honest, a lot of things that you don't see on, on, on in more modern communities. And I, <laughs> since we, we don't shy away from controversy, I've seen a lot of, of you know, financial crimes in ways to, it's expensive to be a good show. It's expensive to finance when you're a child gets married, and I see a lot of schemes to uh, get money when you're not, not completely honest. I feel a lot of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you can get a, get a lot of good reactions when you sit between friends and discuss that. It's, it's a well-known reality. Okay, and what are the risks of modern orthodoxy or the modern life? Well, for sure, there's a risk of assimilation, risk of being, of losing passion. I have not found the same passion for mitzvah, the same passion for learning. Yeah, I mean, go to Friday night in the morning, the typical morning orthodox should just fall asleep. And it's not this, <laughs> it's not this, it's, it's drama, it's cosmic drama. You're talking to God, you're talking to Hashem. I just don't find. Also, at the, on the very left end, of, at the moment when, when if your Torah is just a way for you to justify what the world is thinking in 2022. So all, all Jotro is trying to justify the current ideology, then you've lost everything. Uh, you, you need to maintain a dialogue between tradition and modernity. And, and in some parts of the modern orthodoxy, uh, yes, we'll find ways you know, to justify things that just invoke today and will be passé in 10 years from now. And it's just a game of, of uh, trying to find one verse, one pasuk or one piece of a tongue to say, well, Torah is just about what we think today. And then it turns Torah into a game, and that it's a farce. And once, once you've done that, then you lost everything. You've lost and probably losing the next generation who sees for that game and sees there's no authenticity, no passion or sincerity. So the challenge for modern orthodoxy is to stay, to be open to uh, this other world and still maintain that level of commitment. It's not an easy, it's not an easy way to go. Is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to bring up before we wrap up? We have not discussed another part of my research, which is to study how different Jewish communities, the Hashkafa, the fruits, you can see how the place of men and women, the body and the shava, different concepts, how they are understood, and you find reading all of these books, different visions of how men and women are supposed to behave. And yeah, huge differences inside the Haredi world and huge differences inside the Dati, Lehumi, modern Orthodox world. So I'm also trying to do, what I'm also trying to do is to use these books on as a way to get into the brain, into the mind of the Hashkafa of different from communities, different segments of the, of the orthodox world. Sniwot is a way to, can be understood as an ink blot test, like a test. And I find that very fascinating to see 
that in a way we have discussions in the Froome community. We don't, not always aware, but what's the place of men and women? What's their job? What are their functions? What is the place of Jews in Israel? All these are huge questions that we need to address in today's world. And, and there's a lot of thinking, a lot of discussion going on. You know, there's one way to reach that part of Jewish creativity and Orthodox creativity in the 21st century. All right, let's see. Rabbi Falk, if you ask him. I feel like he, just right, saying in, Rabbi Falk is already triggering to people, but okay, keep going. I don't know, I don't know how to do that. Please tell me, how, how can you do that without triggering? Strong... I, I, I'm just aware. It's, it's just crazy. All right. Um... <laughs> and then I could, I could just see at the same time other people saying, wow, Kedusha. While you're thinking how to respond, I'm personally not, I'm okay. You don't have to worry about my mental health right now on this episode. This reminds me of the Just Say No campaign in 1980 with Nancy Reagan. It feels like legalizing Tznut was this great marketing shtick <laughs> to make women more Tznius, and it failed. By failed, I mean you have either women who feel they are being bossed over, controlled from by the men. When historically, obviously, we were controlled by the men. I don't think it had to be legalized. Look at the ktuba. And, but just saying no or legalizing and saying, you know, the inches, which is Rabbi Falk's book. It's all about the inches. That's a big failure. It takes away from the value. Let me give you an example. You could have a woman wearing very flowy pants or a big sweater. It doesn't cover the knees. But everything that needs to be covered, she almost looks like she has a tent on. So I can just see someone, and, and I've, I've seen this. Oh, she looks so sneeze. Obviously, you would never put that on because the knees aren't covered. But they're in the spirit of sneeze. Right. You, don't, you don't see any curves. They, they just look appropriate, right? Yeah. So th this campaign just feels like a failure, okay? <laughs> I'm oh, waiting for the tomatoes. If you say the same about shadows, obviously, but some of his wigs are just so beautiful, <laughs> just much more than that's a criticism that's often. I'm personally, maybe, maybe that's my answer. I'm not interested in telling anyone how to dress. I'm a scientist, a social scientist. I'm not someone who's interested in telling anyone what to do. No, I get that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, his idea, well, he's not the, he's not the most extreme, by the way. Rabbi, this Rabbi Rosenbaum is even much more extreme. Basically, you have five visions of what Sneot is. One is centered on the male. One is centered on the female. One is centered on the nation. One on the family. And one on the community. And I'll explain. The vision centered on the male. This is this Rabbi Rosenbaum. This Adam of Manvona. This is like an old world that says what Sneot is meant to protect men. So Sneot is meant to make sure that Males are not, you know, sexually aroused. That's, well, I'm sure we're all familiar with that approach. Rabbi Falk says, uh-huh. He says, fluid expresses a woman's identity, expresses her inequalities. I understand that like, some people will find that not palatable and dispute about all of that, but it's still interesting that he puts a woman at the center. He described Sneud as the equivalent of Talmud Torah. No, that's very new. And, and, and you would not find that anywhere in the last 18 centuries. Men have this mitzvah par excellence. It's his Talmud Torah. You can always learn more. You can always study more. You're supposed to not waste five minutes because you're supposed to study Torah. 
Don't be me. Don't no be tools that. Women have, according to Rabbi Falk, women have this infinite mitzvah. You can always do more. You're always supposed to do more. Even inside your home, you're supposed to be tznius. And he goes very far in comparing Talmud Torah to tznius. Now, tznius, which was not one of the 613 mitzvot at all, it's not listed anywhere, has become the number of this foundation of Yiddishkeit in the Anglo-Haredi world, starting in Gateshead in, in, in North America. And, and Rabbi Falk will tell you that you, you have, women have like this direct phone connection to God, which is also very new, a new idea. If you read in the Talmud, well, the Talmud asks why, what kind of merits do women have? And the Talmud says, well, well women, you know, bring kids and bring kids to school and give men time to study Torah. It's men, a woman is understood to be helpers. In Rabbi Falk's book, as strange as it can be, Tzniot has become this direct connection to the divine. That's number two. Rabbi Rosenbaum speaks about the male. Rabbi Falk speaks about the woman. Rabbi Aviner, a French-born Israeli rabbi, says that Tzniot is necessary for the Jewish people to live on Eretz, in Eretz Israel. It's just this, the nation of Israel needs Tzniot. It's, you know, Talmud of Rav Kook, Kook, and he thinks that there's like messianic dimension to Tzniot. That's how we make sure that the Jewish people comes back to its ancestral homeland. And then Rabbi Melamed thinks that Tzniot is a way to make sure that husband and wife love each other. Like, you know, the way Nida is understood today, it's a way to make sure that there's marital bliss in the family. That's we make sure that to preserve a certain sexuality that has to stay within the family, within the couple. And Rabbi Stav, David Stav, he's the rabbi of Shoham in Israel. He used to be a candidate to the post of chief rabbi of Israel. He's on the left wing of the Dati Lehumi wall. He says that Tzniut is a way to make sure that people don't become objects, don't become objectified. That there's a tendency to view the other in front as an object. That's a risk that men and women can fell prey to, that we, we can all view people in front of us as object and not as subject. And Sneud is a way to make sure that we live in a world when we meet other people as subject, as real people. So this is a very academic, inspired by, um, you know, the rabbis who went to university and have PhDs. So very, very different perception of what Sneud is all about. Five main archetypes that I found. And they range the whole spectrum from the most right-wing communities to the most left-wing communities. And you find very, very different conversation of what the goals and objectives of Tzinut and, and how they are supposed to be accomplished. So are you saying everyone can find an option or a category that speaks to them so they can fulfill that mitzvah? Yeah, I guess I'm trying to say that different communities have conversations of what it means to be a man and a woman of what it means to have a body and have a neshama and how to find a balance. And the answers are not the same. If you're in Israel or in North America, or if you're modern Orthodox, we don't give exactly the same answers. But these questions are asked constantly and discussed constantly. And Stephen is one place where all these huge questions are being discussed. I think we covered a lot in this conversation. Is there any parting words you'd like to share? Did you have any crisis of faith in your work with this research? I think the one, this might surprise you. I think the one question I still have is, 
in many ways, I think the halachization of Sneeuwit is understandable, but I think it's objectionable. I think it transforms Sneeuwit into something that is obsessive and extreme. You know, and always, oh, each time something bad happens, you know, COVID happens, it's because women are not serious enough. This is not healthy. But that I knew before. I, I, I knew that before. I guess the one thing that I realized is that the right-wing communities have done something to preserve Sneeuwit. On the left, I'm not sure we have. I'm not sure the more modern orthodox communities have have felt the threats of modernity to um, the value of Sneeuwit and have done anything to preserve it. So, in a way, I the one question that I am still, many questions I'm still grappling with, but this one question is maybe more than orthodox people should do more to preserve Sneeuwit and maybe we can find ways to create a more healthy a healthier snoot for, for everybody, for men and women, for our daughters and our sons, for all of us, for all our communities. And ignoring the question is a choice as well, and it also comes with a price. So I may not always like the answers on the right, this rigidity, this the codification. I may see the, the problems in that, but the, the option not to do anything about snoot is also a a path that comes with a price. I guess that's one of crises. I don't know, but it's one of the questions that I'm asking myself. Do you have daughters? I do, two. <laughs> Four kids, two girls and two, two boys. I, I guess that's one of the questions you're working on. How do I pass this on to my daughters being yes, modern orthodox? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think this is a question of centimeters and I don't think it's a question of colors, but I do think that Boys and girls should be aware that it's part of Jewish tradition. Sure. I do want to ask you, though, the way you do your research and you studied this, I'm assuming you spent years doing this. Did you have a university supporting you through this? Did you do tenure? Or is this a passion project? No, it was my dissertation. I had, yeah, I'm turning this into a book now. So um, hopefully when the book is out, everybody can, you know, burn it for different reasons, but we can have massive autodafies of my book from uh, the right and on the left and on the right for different reasons. Yeah, I was privileged to have two advisors, one in Israel and one here on the, on the United States. Professor Benjamin Brown is probably the one, the, the leading scholar in terms of research on orthodoxy. And Professor Susan Stone, it was very important to me to have a woman advisor as well for such a topic. She is a legal scholar in the United States at Yeshiva University Cardozo Law School. And both of them were just, just fantastic. It was very, very, very fortunate to study with them. And do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel like you have answers? Do you feel like there's a satisfying end to your research? Or Nirvana, it's bliss. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. I think I have a fantastic topic. I'm still trying to find a way to talk to different people. It's, it's much easier to talk about Mishnah, the Zohar, and anything that has been stable for the last 500 years is less angst about the topic. I'm talking about things that people have strong feelings about, and I want to present new perspectives and people. I mean, my common, typically, when we have guests on a Shabbat, Shabbat meal, you know, for lunch, and we invite you know, well, students, and then someone say, what do you do? And I talk about my research topic, and then I can just sit back and listen to other people talking about my, my subject, because everyone has a terrible story to say about this experience in a Jewish school or whatever. So it's a very, very heavy topic today. And I also think it's a very important one. So I hope I can find a way to talk about it in a way that's dispassionate and as objective as possible. Also acknowledge that 
you know, I'm, I'm a human being without my own biases and my own, own subjectivity. It's something here that is very, very much linked to the soul of orthodoxy. What's happening in the firm world is connected to Tzniot. A friend of mine told me that orthodoxy has become the society of Tzniot. I think it's not exaggerated. It's uh, something that is very, very central to the firm world today, and we have to understand. Yeah. I mean, look at the right-wing media. There are no pictures right. of women in there. Yeah. Right. I had a lot to say about that. <laughs> we also have a lot to say on that. Okay, so this has been so nice. Thank you so much for sharing a generous and valuable hour with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. And if anyone wants to react, I don't know if you're welcome to give my, my email address. I'm happy to continue these discussions. Absolutely. We'll link all your information in the show notes and feel free to join the WhatsApp group for the week. Feel free to stay. Thank you for the opportunity. All the best. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and I'm very excited about some of the episodes that are in the works for you in the next upcoming weeks. If you like this podcast, make sure to check the backlog of this podcast. We have some incredible episodes that have been out already for a year or two. We have the From Sex Ed panel. We have all about mikvah, all about Nida. We did cover our thoughts about my Orthodox life when the first season came out. So go check that out as well. And we are a part of Jewish Coffeehouse Network. And there are fantastic podcasts on the network, including Orthodox Conundrum. That's a weekly podcast. There's Intimate Judaism, Chochmat Neshim, and Let My People Eat. So go check them out. If you like the show, make sure you're spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, your community, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow or subscribe to the show on the app that you listen to to make sure you don't miss an episode. And of course, join the WhatsApp group so we can continue the conversations there. I look forward to hearing from you. Have a great, fantastic week. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 